Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, a podcast that asks the hard questions about leadership. Each episode explores the tension or paradox of leadership, asking how founders, entrepreneurs, and scale-up CEOs decide which way to turn. My name is Ian Windle. And I'm Ben Wales. Joining the two of us, we'll have guests, founders and leaders of successful businesses, sharing their stories, as well as authors, keynote speakers, and experts, digging into the rough and smooth of leading. If you like what you hear, subscribe and join the club. Tell us your opinion, ask a question, or introduce a guest. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, and welcome to episode three. This one is called Leadership Begins at the End of Your Comfort Zone. That's great, Ben, but before we crack into that subject, which I can't wait to get into, what's what's caught your attention in the last few weeks? Uh, Willie Walsh has, in the Sunday Times, and there's an article here, it's from a few days ago, the quotes they have really writ large across the page Uh, I can't quite believe this, is Willie Walsh saying, I've only met Richard Branson twice. I don't like the guy. I don't mind saying that. He's never impressed me. If I got the chance, I would probably knee him in the groin. (laughs) And I did a double take. and, And actually, this comes from 2012 when the Dirty Tricks campaign was going on and it was something that was was said way back then, eight years ago now. And I think it's interesting, one, that it's come back to haunt him mm. today, eight, eight years later. But I don't know, Ian, uh, can you ever forgive a leader for saying something like that? I mean, how would you, mm. how would you discipline staff if they got into, you know, BA staff, Virgin staff, get into a fight at, the, at, a, at an airport somewhere down route, um, and, you know, one of them says, well, you know, Willie says that if he met uh, Richard, he'd knee him in the groin. Well, I mean, it's, shocking, isn't yeah, it? it's terrible. I, I just don't think you, you know, you don't want to have a, a win. I win, you lose attitude. Uh, I, I, I don't believe. I mean, we'll come on to some of this later. But uh, it's such a shocking role model as well, I think, for your, uh, you know, I think the leader's the ultimate role model. What Willie Welsh is saying cannot be something I'd want to follow if I was a member of BA. No, and if you're looking at bringing Willie Walsh into uh, a new role, that's that's got to make you think twice. I mean, I know it's a desperate situation and BA's flight volumes are down something like 93 94% and they're burning cash at a tremendous rate mm. uh, and the unions and them are toe-to-toe, they're at loggerheads. The last thing he needs is that headline resurfacing right now. So it's also been unhelpful to him, I think. I think Um, so. Holding grudges can only do yourself harm, in my view. Amen to that. What about about you, Ian? What's got your attention? Well, um, as you know, I'm in the last throes of writing a book. And um, one of the areas I've been... Um, writing a lot on is is uh, measuring success and looking at balanced scorecard and all those good things. And one of my clients has implemented the great game of business. So I decided to grab that book and to read it, find out a bit more before I spoke to him about what he was doing. And it just it just resonated with me because it's everything I believe about businesses. It's about um, 
people at the lowest levels understanding how the business works. It's about education. It's about accountability. It's about feeling you're part of the ownership of the business. And it's about getting measures and targets at every level. So if you're a driver, you understand you could save petrol, you could do, you could change your route, et cetera, et cetera. And it's called a game because it can be a bit of a, of a game in the way you play it. And I, I saw, I went back into this company and I saw them running it albeit on Zoom, but it was really well done. And, and everyone seems to be engaging massively in this. And, and uh, the proof's in the pudding that their, um, their revenues and profits have shot up since they started adopting this approach. Interesting. So if I understand well, this is a bit like turning our businesses into monopoly so that every player in the business is is really able to understand how the game is played and play their part well. Have I got yeah, that right? Yeah, well, exactly. And, and what was amazing is that the Zoom call I observed had everybody who's in the business on the call and the drivers and the warehousemen were listening to the sales and marketing people talking um, and vice versa. And uh, anyone could challenge anyone else openly on the call. Um, all the figures are transparent and it was beautifully um, created and run by the finance manager and everyone seems to buy in and uh, everyone's egging each other on. Can you push your target up next week, next month? Um, and they, they, own, they really do own them. It's, it's, it's really good to see. What does that do to the leadership? Because there's a real shift there by the sounds of it to decision-making right down to the, the front line. So what does that leave the managers and the leaders doing? Well, I suppose it does what all leaders really want to do, um, which is to step away and be strategic. Because what you're saying when you implement a system like this is you're going to different people in the business and saying, look, here's how the business works. Here's the numbers in the business. Um, what do you do? And the chap says, well, I'm a driver. So what do you think you could influence? Well, I could influence how long I stay in the cab. I could influence how much petrol I put in the cab. I could influence how many people I see. I could influence how they feel about me. Okay, well, if you can influence all those things, tell me what the what the baseline is and let's let's look at the let's look at the numbers uh let's look at the petrol you're putting in the van let's look at the numbers of people you're seeing let's look what they say about you so we get that data and we say there it is and they go wow that's amazing well uh so do you think you can do any more or you can up some of those figures yeah i could actually i reckon i could do more trips in a day i reckon i could put less petrol in if i drove carefully i think i could certainly uh, uh now i understand that Customers are rating us on an NPS score. I'll look at that as well. So you get people, it's this education piece. And, and um, uh, I, I do think it stops, it stops managers thinking they've got to set targets for everyone and own them further up the organization. In fact, the ownership just goes further and further down, which has got to be good. Sounds fascinating. And I know that in my business, I regularly said that every single one of us is, is a leader. And, and this has reminded me of that. But also with the senior teams I'm, I'm working with, I'm always saying you've got to get into a position where your functional team is empowered and they've got a good hold and grip and autonomy on today, this week, this quarter, so that you can focus, as you said, 
on the strategic priorities. Sounds yeah. like I should read the book, uh, Ian. It's good. It's a really good book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just one last thing on that subject. The guy who wrote the book, Jack Stack, his intention was that everybody in his business, because it's all linked to a bonus pot, and it's basically saying everyone's going to benefit from the extra money we were going to make whilst we look and we raise our, our targets individually. And so they agree what the bonus pot is. They, they, they run it over the course of a year and everyone's paid exactly the same amount of money, not a percentage of your salary, just exactly the same amount of money. So a director is paid the same as a driver in terms of the exact amount of money. Um, and that means uh, it really buys in the people with, on the lowest salaries. But the chap who, who wrote the book, his intention was that everyone eventually would be able to pay off their mortgage and own their house. What, mm -hmm. what a great thing for a business. And, uh, um, and he did. And that's what he achieved in his business. Jack Stack. Fantastic. So sounds like I should read that. So on to today's show and our title, Leadership Begins at the End of Your Comfort Zone. And, well, I've heard often that learning begins at the end of your comfort zone. And, and of course, it does. Uh, we know that learning is, is experiential. And really, to experience anything, we have to get out of, away from, and beyond what's familiar. So, in a sense, outside our comfort zone. And then we can experience something new and, and learn from it. But leadership, why does why does leadership begin at the end of the comfort zone? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, it's looking at really what is this what is this uh, piece called comfort zone, um, and what does it mean if you're there, and what it means if you're not there. I think it takes you back to sort of challenging the status quo. If you're happy to to do the same thing day in day out and be totally comfortable with where your business is, the likelihood is somebody's going to overtake you. So even at a micro level or a macro level, it's the same thing. Um, and if you think this, this really, this, this approach of outside your comfort zone, I think it goes right from real macro things, really strategic things like setting a vision. Is that vision challenging, stretching, exciting? Is it going to get me out of bed in the morning? Or is it something that's uh, a bit... Uh, facile a bit boring uh, really it's i don't even understand what it means which you look at some visions that's what they'd give me um but then going you know big hairy audacious goals well they're called big hairy and audacious because they're outside your comfort zone that's why they're, they're called that so what leaders have to do is take a risk if leaders keep doing the same things, they'll get the same results. So what is a risk? It's doing something that you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, going back to what you said about learning, um, if you're going to do anything that's risky, that's outside your comfort zone, you're going to learn and you're going to grow. There's a real logic here. If we're going to learn and grow, uh, we only do that when we, we don't know the outcome. So we learn, we grow, we take a risk, and our businesses grow. And you, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. You cannot grow a business without growing your people. You grow your people by getting them to stretch. You've got to support them. You've got to make it safe for them to take a risk. And so the, the comfort part of leadership is not somewhere you want to be. And you do need to create 
a culture where it's energetic, exciting, fast moving, and you're allowing, you're creating this safety, as Simon Sinek talks about, which allows people to be comfortable taking the risk, to be comfortable going outside their comfort zone. So you you will, I can't remember where I read this, but you will normalize discomfort. And I love that phrase, because I think that's what leaders have got to do. They've got to show that this is okay. And you know, the more you step outside your comfort zone, the more comfortable it becomes, and then you'll go again. Um, so it, you know, it's it's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a, it's a virtuous circle. It keeps going round and round. The more you do it, the more you get. So, Ben, what about your view of this? Well, leadership begins at the end of your comfort zone. I think we have a lazy word in here, and that lazy word is is your. For me, this is all about leadership beginning at the end of the organisation's comfort zone. And if I think about the recent weeks and pandemic, one of the organisations I, I work with who've, who've impressed the socks off me. The first thing I noticed was that as all of their competitors furloughed swathes of staff, they kept all of theirs engaged. Uh, that was different. That was a point of principle. And they went on to, they've done brilliantly. They've, during lockdown, they have found organizations they were not yet in dialogue with, identified opportunity, developed it, negotiated, and closed a number of deals with a ticket greater than a million pounds. It's fantastic. Mm. They've absolutely developed the art of high-value selling when they can't and haven't met their, their customer. And for me, this is because that's an organisation that, that became comfortable, if you like, being outside its comfort zone. And we could say to them, and we have, that... This is what we've trained for, this huge impact, uh, unexpected uh, pandemic arrives, everything changes. This is what we've trained for. And staying outside their comfort zone has, has enabled them to make those wins, which are you know critically important. And by the way, they stood out massively to their customers as well, because they didn't furlough their staff. In fact, they lent into their customers. And they provided a, a, a brilliant service. So it's all about, I think, taking your organization outside its own comfort zone frequently. But I guess the, the counterpoint is that, you know, the leader sets the, sets the temperature, the leader sets the, the scene. And so this can come up in, in another way. And, you know, and the role of the leader, I suppose, is to make the organization comfortable when it's outside uh, a comfort zone. They have to be brave. They have to go first. And sometimes simply it's the right thing to do as well. And I remember a few years ago getting on a plane to Stockholm to talk to the group CEO and persuade them to divest the UK business, which I know is something that hadn't been on his radar. It hadn't been on my radar uh, until I worked with some other CEOs and and it was pointed out to me. It was lucky that it was a two and a half hour flight to, to Stockholm because Boy, did I need to prepare uh, that conversation. And I, I arrived in Stockholm. That was the conversation I, I had, and we made a quick decision. It was the right thing to do. 
And that's what happened. We divested the UK business. The new owners were more strategic for us. It lifted up the value proposition. It changed our strategy a bit. It catapulted the organization forward. But boy, did it scare the socks off me as I got onto that plane and contemplated uh, that conversation with the CEO. It was absolutely a conversation I'd not had before and didn't have uh, a model for, but it was the right thing, the right thing to do. And then I had to get back into the business, make it happen and help the organization to feel confident as we took a brand new direction and a step into the dark. So I see both sides of it. It's This is about uh, keeping the organization beyond its comfort zone, but it's also about the leader doing the right thing, even if that's something completely new. And how did that change you, Ben? Because it's, you know, you just said it kind of scared you a bit to get on that flight. You didn't know what was going to happen. As I said, you didn't know the outcome. So it was was a risk. Uh, As it worked so well for you and you came back and, you know, had to implement that, did that change you at all? I guess it did. And the immediate change was finding the confidence to step out of that particular comfort zone. But if I'd taken that step, there were other comfort zones I could move beyond. And of course, this was borne out to be exactly the right thing for the the organisation. And so I learned to look in non-obvious places. I learned as well that people Mm. would follow me, that they could see it was the right thing to do. And it might have been frightening and unknown for them but because it was the right thing to do they they followed and and I guess today as I look back a few years I might I might say something different I might say that the the best way to predict the future is to create the future and actually I de-risked the future and there was a lot of uncertainty before I took that flight and one of the things that stepping into the unknown did was give me control over that destiny or at least a high degree of influence. So you know, perhaps that's where I'd end up. The best way to predict the future is to create it. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And um, we do we do talk about, you know, we were talking about resilience w- recently, weren't we, with um, Emma Bell. And um, she talked about control and influence and, you know, and, not, and not controlling areas of your life and where you can control it, get in there and take action. And it... Um, it not only boosts our confidence, but it makes us feel better that here's something I can influence. Uh, well, then let me, it's, it's, it's my responsibility if I feel something to get in and do it. And so it seems that you've, you, you know, you've followed that through, you've followed your heart, you've prepared well, and you've got an outcome. So it, it must have made you feel very proud at the end of that. I guess it did. Yeah. All right. Well, Ian, a couple of examples there, one from a client I'm working with, one from my own leadership journey. What have you thought of while we've been talking about leadership beginning at the end of the comfort zone? Well, a company I've mentioned before, and I'm no doubt mentioned again, is Toyota. And one of their values, interestingly, is challenge, which means they challenge themselves, they challenge the status quo, they, they challenge pretty much everything. And I remember vividly back in 2008, 2009, when a lot of car companies were thinking, how are we going to get through that financial crisis? How are we going to save a bit of money? How are we going to keep our customers? Toyota, like many Japanese organizations, got a very long-term view, a very big vision. So they don't make decisions based on months or even years, but more like decades. 
And their view, which some would see as quite risky at the time, was to throw a lot of money and make a lot of investments in their brand, in their retail outlets, and in their product lineup. And they did that all of the time when a lot of car companies were doing exactly the opposite. And as a result, several years later, when the economy was in a good shape and people were spending money, they were a great place. And so that's, that's my first sort of corporate example. Um, interestingly, also at the beginning of lockdown, I was faced like many others with some big challenges. And one part of what I do is speaking to groups of CEOs across the country. And that all completely shut down in terms of me getting in a car or getting on a plane or going by train to a part of the country because I couldn't do that anymore. So all the speaking gigs I had stopped. And I had to think very quickly, uh, A, what am I going to speak about that's relevant? Because suddenly we were in this middle of this crisis that no one had predicted. And so your standard speaking subjects weren't necessarily going to be that relevant to people and they weren't going to be looking for them. And secondly, I had to speak on Zoom or MS Teams or go to meetings or another platform. And whilst I had been speaking for years, I hadn't been speaking to a dozen CEOs over Zoom for three hours on a subject. So I had to take a risk uh, to figure out what they wanted. I had to draft and then create a program and I had to deliver it. Uh, the outcome of that was I delivered 18 sessions over Zoom over the three month period, which is more than I was booked for before it started. So it just shows if you if you are able to grab that challenge, think it through and run with what you believe is right, which is what I did. Um, and I definitely got better at speaking over Zoom as it as it went on. Um, it can be great for you. And, and, and a bit like you, I think, it, it gave me the confidence uh, to say, well, I can do this on Zoom now. And in fact, one of the outcomes is that I've been booked to speak to three groups virtually in Canada in 2021. Okay, well, that's, you know, that that's an interesting interesting thing and well done by the way but it's interesting isn't it right there you step beyond your comfort zone and the question that surfaced in there is so what's possible now that we've stepped into this new place because you didn't take that step thinking you would be speaking in Canada and of course if you're speaking in Canada you could be speaking around the rest of the world that wasn't the intention of taking that step but that became possible what else has changed for you having taken that step Ian? I think just what you've um, you've remarked on really it's made me think um like for many people this technology that I was unused to uh is not going away so therefore I need to take advantage of it so if I'm speaking, I can, so I've just accepted um, a speaking session uh, in in the United Arab Emirates in a month's time. And they approached me and said, would I come on and do a half hour program? And they're, they're, they're approaching TEDx speakers and saying, would you come and do a half, half hour program? And I said, sure. Um, uh, and so uh, I'm not, sh I'm not sure how, how they found me, you know, but probably through TEDx or something, but the interesting thing is, I think it just opens it up, doesn't it? And I think that's the thing. As soon as you go out of comfort into stretch, you suddenly go, 
that's now become my new normal. That's become something I'm now comfortable with. Um, so you t- you take a march, if you like, on your competitors because you're now operating in a new world that maybe fewer people are. Um, so for me to become good at delivering on Zoom, GoToMeetings, etc., will give me a real march on those who really have maybe haven't gone into that with a great deal of confidence or maybe haven't gone into it at all and said you know what i'm just going to wait till this blows over and i'm going to go to speak in in rooms again um so i think it's it just it makes you realize that these are all possible and i think the other thing is you realize that actually groups of ceos i work with who have seen people speak on zoom and virtually have realized that for the most part it works pretty well if they're good at it and therefore, why do you need to get them in the room all the time? So you get a different conversation from even the people you've worked with to say, do you know what? We don't need to have a speaker in the room for, for three hours. In fact, we don't need a speaker for three hours all the time. So it just allows us to be a bit more creative in how we're using people and, and how, how I'm marketing myself. Well, this is really coming together for me. We step outside our comfort zone, either personally or the organisation's and we're more engaged, we're more alert, we're beginning to ask what's possible. And of course, this is a zone where something new can be invented, so there's competitive advantage to be found. And the alternative is we don't do that, and we stay in the comfort zone, and it doesn't feel to me too far from from sleepwalking. So here's a question, what does it take? What does it take for a leader or the organization to do this? Well, I think like many things, it takes the leader to show that that's how we want the organization to be. Uh, And I think the leader's got to demonstrate it, that I step outside my comfort zone and I'm willing to take a risk. You know, you can't, you can't as a leader, and we've seen this again and again, you can't say, I want you all to take risks and step outside your comfort zones. And then you see the leader just not doing that. It just doesn't work. So the leader's got to show and talk about it, that I took this risk, this happened, and then describe how they took the risk, how they managed that risk, how there was, they put some you know safety mechanisms around it, if you like, to mitigate the problems if it went wrong. And then tell the story about what happened, the journey to take the risk and what the outcome was. And, 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 and then say to people, it's okay to do this. And of course, then what they've got to show all the way through the business is that if somebody's willing to stand up and try something uh, and really push themselves outside this comfort zone to go to the edge and try something, they've got to support them. Because you cannot, you cannot then say you shouldn't have done that or, or you say, you sh- I don't want you trying that. You know, you've got to have a really good reason to stop somebody pushing themselves a bit if that's what you're trying to encourage you can't you can't send mixed messages through an organization because it will be a bit of a disaster so you've got to be very clear what that means but it's got to as all these things it's got to come from the top from leaders to to make it happen and uh you've got to got to show people that there's there's safety around doing it what about you ben what do you what do you think how do you how do you how do you start this if, if you're if you're sitting there thinking it seems like a good idea well This for me is about not trying to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in a single step. And in our organizations, as you said, 
we should be encouraging folk out of their comfort zones right from the get-go and in small ways and in more adventurous ways as well so that they build their awareness so that they uh, begin to understand how to evaluate risks choose the ones to take not to take how to mitigate how to regroup afterwards and so that they see hey when that worked that was worth having you know and that for me is a big part of evaluating the risk you know is is it worth having what's the potential cost uh, of getting there because by definition not all risks mm. are going to come off but the other thing here is making sure the organization has a, a strong north star in the form of strategy and values as well they're the ultimate decision filter to get where we're going as we step outside the comfort zone and we're unfamiliar how are we going to behave there's our values right there so we need strong strategy and the elements of that you know vision and mission uh, as well as being clear about our strategic plan and priorities however we do that in the organization but also the values so that when we get outside that familiar territory we behave in a way that we know is us is recognizable make makes sense to our colleagues and our customers as well and I guess um, back back to you on this for a moment, uh, Ian. The risk, if you like, the risk of being risky, the risk is recklessness. So how do we stop short of recklessness in the organisation? Well, that's that's a tough one, isn't it? Because if you're saying go and take risks, then uh, what's a reckless risk and what's a managed risk? You know, you've got to probably develop some sort of process so that people will come together and assess whether this is a risk worth taking. I don't think you're saying in organizations, everyone just go off and do some new stuff and see what happens. Again, going back to the, you know, the processy world of Toyota, and, and I'm getting bored with my own examples of them now because they keep flowing out. But, but if you wanted to try something new, they have this thing called an A3, where you're pretty much putting down on paper in a very simple format. It's called A3 because it's A3 size of paper. But you're putting down in a very simple format and there's a process behind it. This is what I want to do. And this is what the return will be if it works. And so if you're going to invest, you know, quarter of a million pound in a new thing that you've never tried before, then have you thought it through? Because you don't want, as you say, yeah, well, I'll just, you know, try it on a whim and see what happens. You want things still to be thought through. And, and, and. I saw the A3 work in action when I was a provider for a staff conference they were doing back in about 2000. I was part of putting this A3 together and taking it to the board. And they had to decide whether this was worth investing in and what was the ROI going to be. So I think you've got to have some process that kind of allows people in a, in a, in a consistent way to determine whether they should throw money resources time at something which is risky and then a group of people had to make the call um whether that's you know from a holocratic point of view to talk about another organizational structure which companies like zappos have implemented where they can decide in very small teams who are totally self-running yes we want to do that within the confines of the strategic planning process we've already made but we have the authority to do it um, or whether it's just in a conventional sort of hierarchical structure where you might have to go up the up the ladder a wee bit, but it's still, I still believe it's not, It's what you're not saying is everyone go off and do their own thing and let's hope it works. 
because that would be chaotic and, and you probably get a lot of things failing. So I think there has to be a process behind it is what I'm saying. Yeah. And you know, part of what you're saying there is don't be maverick. We don't want to create mavericks in the organization. And yeah, a couple of approaches there, bounded empowerment. So we should be saying to our teams, we want you to take calculated risks. And this is what you can risk. You can't risk the ranch, but you can take risks up to a certain value, for example, or you can invest a a certain amount of time and R&D time or whatever it might be, set out the boundaries. That might be one idea here. And another is we can war game what we're going to do. I mean, I know that when I began skydiving, I didn't rock up to the drop zone, grab a rig, hop on a plane, jump out at 15,000 feet. So there was a lot of ground school. And then there was a tremendous amount of drilling, the, the tens of things that might go wrong during a skydive. And I rehearsed every single one of them. I knew what I would do in each situation. And we can do this. We can do this in business. We're contemplating taking a risk. We think it's worthwhile. We told people about it. We've got support. Well, before we open the door and step out of the aircraft, let's spend some time working out what all of the likely outcomes are and preparing for each. What are we going to do if it turns this way and that way? And these are ways that we can develop uh, the skills of risk-taking, of being productive and innovative outside our our comfort zones. I love that example, Ben. I love the idea that we're all standing at the edge of the door, ready to jump. But have we thought it through? Have we thought it through that what happens if the wind changes direction? What happens if the plane drops a thousand feet? What happens if the parachute? Sure, because there's definitely times, right, when you shut the door and you go back yeah. in and you tell the uh, tell the pilot, "Let's go get yeah. a cup of tea." Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. All right, uh, wrap this wrap this up for us. We've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, Ian, what would what would you pull out? Uh, I, well, I think it's this is something I think organisations have got to do. I, I, I don't think we want to, we should want to work for an organisation that isn't pushing the boundaries, it isn't stretching us, that isn't energising us, asking us to take a managed risk. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to work for an organisation like that. Why is that? Because I think they're going to be left behind. I think we need to grow. Our organizations need to grow. We need to set bold visions and we need to take all our people with us on that journey. And it's almost, I think, as a leader, is it not your responsibility to grow people in your business, to allow them to make the most of who they are? It's not just about putting money into the bank. It's about growing individuals, seeing them grow. There's nothing better for a leader than to see an individual grow because they've tried something new. It's worked. They've got confidence. They're now a better version of themselves. They try it again. They grow, etc. And, and, and so I think that's what we should all be aiming for, to push ourselves, to push our businesses, not because they, they're frightening, because they're engaging, because they make us better people and we create better businesses. What about you, Ben? What, what have you taken out of this? What's your what's your highlights? Well, I'm thinking again of of Willie Walsh. I'm still looking at his his picture in the the newspaper spread on my on my desk here, and I think actually he he took the the easy option. He took the easy option of of saying what he did. Uh, what would have been better would be, you know, hey hey BA, um, look at Virgin and look at where they've come from. 
uh, and look at where they're going and look at who they're taking with them and some of the stuff they're doing. These guys are going to take our breakfast. Let's let's up our game. What are the ways we can up our game? And now this is aviation, so it doesn't feel natural, does it, to talk about a risk-taking culture uh, in aviation? But surely he needed his organisation to be thinking how can we make ourselves stand out to our passengers? How can we be off the runway ahead of that verging Atlantic plane? How, when, when a customer's got a choice, two different tickets, how can we make sure that they're going to, they're going to buy our ticket and come back to, to us? And what are the risks and what are the, what are the steps into the unfamiliar we need, to, we need to take to develop the art of the possible? Great. Yeah, I love it. I, I love it. It's asking questions of yourself, um, which is what we all need to do to um, to get us moving, to get us to get us challenged, to get us excited. And, that, and there's no need to go, which I think is a rather old style CEO leaders thing, which is, you know, we need to we need to have an enemy um, uh, rather than we need to look at ourselves. So maybe it's a good question. Where am I being yeah. too safe? Where is the organisation being too safe? Where are we in danger of mm. sleepwalking when we should be eyes wide open, door pulled back, working out whether there's yep. a good jump to take? Love it. And before we, we wrap up, because you and I seem to be getting into a bit of a flow on this, so what the hell. <laughs> before we wrap up, um, we talked about commercial organisations and we've talked about big ones and small ones. How about the not-for-profits and charities? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because my first thoughts were, maybe this doesn't apply as much. But actually, I think that's wrong. I think it applies equally. We know, especially it came, came to the fore during lockdown, didn't it? How charities were suffering terribly because uh, people weren't giving money to charities anymore. And so everyone is out there competing, whether you're a charity or you're making cars. Uh, and therefore, you've got to have a, a commercial view, if you like, of how do I grow this organization? If you're running a charity, then your mission would be bring in money from donors and supporters to give that money to the cause that's at the heart of your your charity the more you can do that the more successful your charity is therefore you have to understand that that's a business development exercise that will be taking risks trying new things getting new customers and so i believe it matters not a jot whether you're not-for-profit charity sector or in a fast-growing technology business you agree with me ben or have you got another another take on this it is important for, for charities. Perhaps I'll come at it in in a different way. The you know, a great charity has taken the risk of raising an agenda that desperately needs to be raised, is challenging the, the status quo. It's an inconvenient truth quite often. Society doesn't want to hear it, but it counts. And the more that a charity can do that, I think two two things happen. One is we've socialised a cause powerful enough that people will continue to back it when times are tough. 
And second, we've got a team of people who are saying, hell, now it really counts. This is the moment when I need to go the extra mile in my job, when I need to reach out to a group of people that perhaps I'd have pulled back from before. And that all comes back to, is the charity being risky is the the wrong word, so let's flip it. Is the charity being brave enough and courageous enough in the cause that it's fighting for and putting that out there Mm. in a way Mm. that's getting attention? Absolutely. Everything needs to work towards putting people out of their comfort zone, into their stretch zone, because that's where life begins. On that note, before we get too (laughs) philosophical, but I love it, let's wrap up then. We'll be back shortly, Ian. Our next episode is titled Peacetime CEO, Wartime CEO. That's a lot of fun today. Thank you, Ian. And I've still got this image of you ready to jump out of that plane. And uh, it's a great one to take with me as we sign off. (laughs) See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gritty Leaders Club. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and join the club. If you'd like to ask a question or offer an opinion or even suggest a guest, please get in touch with Ian at ianwindle.com or Ben at benwales.com. We'd love you to join our club and tell us what you think.